Hey everyone. Hi. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Allison Rosen is your new best friend. I'm sitting here with author and host Courtney Hameister. She wrote a book called Okay, Fine, Whatever. The year I went from being afraid of everything to only being afraid of most things. Um, I loved this book. I related to you intensely. I was like, I have to talk to you about all sorts of stuff. One would think a book where you're going to conquer your fears would be like in your hang gliding and you're jumping out of planes, and but it's a little different than that. Yeah. Uh, so I'd like to get into what the book is about. But off mic, we were talking a bit about the book tour you're on right now. Mm-hmm. And then I said, wait, hold, hold that because you're in an RV. I am. <laughs> and I wanted to know, and I, I said, let's, fi- let's talk about that, this when we start, which is now. So explain the, the RV choice. Well, so I'm not an RV person. Mm-hmm. I think I think it's it's um I just I'm I'm first of all just not a camper uh, in general and Same. I know RVs aren't camping, but it's more of a glamping situation. Um and but this is not a glamorous RV. So my my boyfriend is a car person. Like he likes to buy cars and fix them up and race them in autocrosses and things like that. Um uh, weirdly, because he's this introvert, and so uh, he doesn't fit into that world very much. Uh, <laughs> it's, yeah, that's a whole other story. But um, but anyway, he uh, so he has this RV because he uses it to pull this giant trailer that has a car in it generally mm-hmm. to go places and and gotcha. uh, race. So when we were talking about doing a book tour, it was me actually, <laughs> weirdly, and maybe it's because of the book and yeah. everything that I did with the book. But I was like, "What if we just got in the RV and we just drove down the coast, of, you know, of California?" And I mean, and it's a fun idea when it's in the idea form. It absolutely is, and I have to say, I mean, I for, first of all, I haven't taken this much time off from work in decades, and because uh, it's been, it's it'll be two weeks by the time we're done. Uh, but also, it's stunning. California is so gorgeous and I've seen so many beautiful things and it's it's been really fun. It's definitely not all fun and games mm-hmm. and I absolutely um ha- you know when I have book events, when I have any events, um I like I've I've said and you you may you may relate to this based on what I've based on what I've heard you talk about um you know, not in your head, you have, oh my God, what if nobody comes? And then, oh my God, what if everybody comes? Yeah. <laughs> and everything causes you anxiety about right. it. And that's been really interesting. I think to normally I hide that from mm-hmm. people. I try to hide it from people, but he's in, he's with me the whole time. So I can't hide my pre show anxiety from him, you know? And so that's been, you know, and, and as a person with anxiety, you not only have the anxiety that exists in your body mm-hmm. anyway, but this great, awesome thing where um, you have the shame about your anxiety right. and trying to hide it. You and that like you shouldn't have it. Exactly. Like you're being irrational, mm-hmm. literally. And, <laughs> um, and so, and so it sort of piles on a little bit, you know, when, when there are people around that, right. that, that get to see it. Yeah. So it's been that, that aspect of it has, has been interesting. He's been, lovely and wonderful he's a very calm person is this the boyfriend that you 
spoiler alert <laughs> yeah i feel i know should i not i feel like that's I okay know, it's, it's everyone I loves a romance to, right this is the boyfriend that you found that you uh the relationship started in the book right yeah. so how yeah. long has it been now it's been like th- over three years now wow yeah very nice so it's been a while remind me how you met him uh i met him on ok cupid yeah date dating i met him in dating hell <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So are you now are you guys sleeping in the RV? We are. Yeah. It's a full on, you know, it's got a bedroom in it and Mm -hmm. a little kitchen. And, you know, I I was the most excited when I actually got to cook a baked potato at 55 miles (laughs) on the highway. (laughs) And is he driving? I just he's he has driven so far 1600 miles. Wow. So we still have to go back. Where is the RV now? Because I know that you're in a rental. I am in a rental. (laughs) Um, It is parked. uh, I think it's on Los Feliz somewhere. Um, because I'm staying with a friend who lives in LA. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, we just parked it. Um, we're going to have to move it for street cleaning, of course. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah. And so we, yeah, we just got a rental car so we can actually go places because right. you can, um, San Francisco in an RV was crazy. That just gives me anxiety thinking about it. Oh, I yeah. lived in New York for like nine years and I drove once in mm-hmm. the city and I had more opportunities like I would be there would be assignments where we had to rent a car and if there was anyone else like I was I remember traveling with a photographer and I made him drive I just <laughs> it made me too nervous no I mean New York drivers are absolutely insane yeah um, and I've noticed I mean driving in LA has been a little like driving in Portland but I would not get on the freeway here there's just I wouldn't I would do whatever I, I could to avoid I'd, I'd spend three hours on on you know <laughs> surface streets. streets so how have the book events been going they've been going well the the very first one was on a monday in san jose and i don't really know anyone in san jose and i you know it's supposedly oh you know you've written a book it's a it's a writer's sort of rite of passage to read to that one guy who's standing in self-help just (laughs) glaring at you like this is my me time and you're ruining it um (laughs) and i didn't get that i it was five it was five very lovely very sweet women um uh and so but i but i kind of you know i I knew that this was going to happen that there would be events like this but everything else i did writers with drinks in in san francisco which i would recommend to anybody it was a super fun event at this bar called the makeout room Mm -hmm. Uh, loved that and then yeah Santa Cruz you can imagine the extremely warm people um, because that's sort of a hippie town and then back in San Francisco was was great I yeah I read it book passage there at the ferry building so you were the host of Livewire Mm -hmm. for how long nine years nine years and what was what was uh, Livewire is on PRI. Yeah, it's Public Radio Inter- International, okay. which I think is now also PRX. Like I think. Yeah, they, as mm-hmm. I said, I my brain was saying yeah. X. Um, <laughs> and now Luke Burbank hosts mm-hmm. it, right? And every show was live. Well, it, we, recorded, we recorded. We recorded I mean. live yeah. in front of an audience. Yes. And what's interesting is that you did it for nine years, but your tell me if I'm right, your stage fright and your anxiety about it never went away. Yes. I mean, it it actually wasn't that bad when we started the show, Mm. but it got progressively worse as the show went on. Was that as the audience got bigger? Um, It's funny. It wasn't about that. And I'm not really sure. Well, certainly... I think uh, when we very first started doing the show, we did it once a month. Mm-hmm. And then, and and so 
I would have anxiety for about a week out of the month. And then we started doing it every two weeks. And so half of my month was really filled with anxiety. Mm -hmm. And that's when it became untenable. But it really was that sort of frog in a hot tub situation, you know, where I I was just like, oh, well, this is just what life life is. And, you know, this is what I just have to go through to do this thing that's so extraordinary that I love. And then when you quit, you you had definitely had feelings about it, but you didn't regret no longer having this thing that you had to do every couple weeks correct yeah i i as i said in the book like i um i i never wanted that job back Mm -hmm. but i definitely recognized what i had lost like i there's a story in the book where i um you know it was one of the first times that luke hosted and i was sitting at the producer's table because i kept my job as Mm -hmm. head writer and producer which was kind of crazy to do that Um, But then I watched him host the show and the show went really smoothly and I actually enjoyed watching it. Mm. And it was this great night. But then we went to the bar afterwards and he was sitting with one of the guests who was a film director and some kind of audience members around him. And he was sort of holding court back there. And I immediately burst into tears and I had to hide in the bathroom. And it was because I, I recognized what it what it felt like to do that show, what it felt like to finish, like to have that relief when it was over. And also that I think for a person who doesn't have amazing self image, Mm. it was, I think to me, um, very gratifying and sort of, and that, that there were 400 people who believed that I had my shit together enough to spend three hours with me mm-hmm. and that, that I was worth their time. I think that that actually really helped. And I hear that a from lot of validation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think that um, losing that um, and losing the fact that these amazing people that I got to talk to who were so talented saw me as a peer, mm-hmm. losing that was really huge for me. That makes sense. I mean, that's like a big identity piece. Yeah. It really was. So now that you are experiencing life as a book author, mm-hmm. does that does that feel like does that suit you more? Um, I think that it does. I mean, I I think that that uh, the thing is, I still am doing things sort of on a smaller scale. I uh, like I'm going to the Austin Film Festival again this year to moderate panels. Mm -hmm. And that to me feels so perfect. It's recorded. There's generally an audience of maybe 100 people. And that feels manageable, you know, Um, and it doesn't feel like I have an entire staff who's depending on me to not suck or not have to bow out. You know, the the, definitely the stakes are a little bit lower. Mm -hmm. So I'm doing that. Um, but it, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it feels, you know, I, I mean, you've done live events too. That feeling that you get when you have to get butts in seats mm. feels, feels like so much pressure. I feel like I'm like, my body's on fire. Yeah. <laughs> like, like I get this, thankfully I haven't, the last show I did, this doesn't sound like bragging and it is a little bit, the last show I did sold out really fast yeah. and I was like, when I looked on the website and I saw that. It was um, SF Sketchfest. I was like, "This is a mistake. Like, there's, <laughs> there's no way." And so I didn't have that feeling. But prior to that, especially like the last, the last handful of live podcasts I've done have been at festivals, so it's been a little bit different. But before, when I was like just doing a show at a comedy club, and then they'd be like, "Okay, you've sold this many tickets." When it was like a week before, it was I would go into like I felt 
desperation and nervousness and I didn't know what to, like I would just begin psychotically tweeting and it's like my no my people are it's like we, I need a bigger signal boost like I don't know I it felt desperate helpless it was the it's the worst feeling yeah 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 because you you, you don't have any control over what these people are going to do right and also the funny you know if you're a person who's who's anxious in any way it's great news if you know it's 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 great news if if it's sold out mm-hmm. but it's also bad news <laughs> if it's sold out right because you're then dealing with a sold out crowd and that does change the stakes a little mm. bit yeah and so uh and so it's a yeah it's an it's a definitely an interesting dynamic that i don't i just wouldn't want to do that again where every two weeks you're trying to make sure that the crowd's going to be there right and that you're pleasing them yeah you know i, I think um there's uh I, I had these amazing conversations with both luke burbank who took my uh, who took over I was gonna, who took my job um <laughs> <laughs> took over for me as host and ophira eisenberg mm-hmm. who who hosts ask me another on npr um just sort of about their experience of performing and i think so much of why they love it and so much of why they're good at it is because they have this outlook, this positive outlook that you absolutely have to have if you're a, if you're a person who, who performs over and over mm-hmm. again. You know, Ophira talked about when she did stand up for the first time, she got one laugh. Like she, she, there was just this one laugh. And for her, it was she, it, she was elated about that and to me <laughs> that is so cups half full <laughs> exactly like to me i would be mortified if mm-hmm. i got one laugh and what she said was i didn't know that person i made a stranger laugh oh my god what an amazing attitude <laughs> right like and 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 luke talks about it he's just and essentially he talks about it as self delusion like yeah, you know and you, so interesting. and he's like some comics will hear laughs that aren't there and some comics never hear the laughs that are there mm-hmm. and I think that was my issue I could I could just I couldn't hear the people who were laughing I couldn't pay attention to the good reviews right all I could do was focus on the bad stuff and yeah. the people who were sitting there scowling at me mm-hmm. you know and that's it's not that's just it's not a sustainable way to live right right so let's talk about the book like I said before it's you don't it's not a bunch of crazy physical st- well it sort of is but <laughs> yeah some of it so uh, it started as a column, right? It did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was called The Reluctant Adventure. Mm-hmm. And where where did that run and what was that like and how did how did the book come about? Well, it was it ran on uh on a website. It was it was actually uh it was I think that it was it was called Go Local PDX um that I think no one from Portland is writing for anymore. But um <laughs> but yeah, so so I wrote the column and I got a sort of a I got a little bit of a following for the column, mm-hmm. but um it was also read by uh my my friend Daniel Wilson. Uh I was in a writers group with him. He wrote a book called Robopocalypse, which is nothing like my book. <laughs> um <laughs> but it was optioned by Spielberg. Oh wow. Um yeah, so he was doing very well for himself and he had this wonderful agent Lori Fox and um he had introduced me to her and uh and we became Facebook friends, as you do, right, mm-hmm. with people that you introduce to. And she started, I just was posting my column, and she started reading it, and she said, this this looks like a book to me. And she, here's the thing about anxiety, another thing, another fun anxiety story, <laughs> um, is that she, she, she wrote me an email and said, I think your column is a book, and I'd love to talk to you about it. And 
it took me six months to answer this. <laughs> <laughs> because how, I, how frequently did you think about it in between oh, that, those, those six lot, months? A fair amount. I mean, the problem was that I took too long to email her back. And then you do the thing where it's been too long. Yeah, so, so I can't, can't do the casual. Can't email now. And now I really can't. So, And that's kind of what I had done. And um, thankfully, I had a, uh, uh, my friend McKinley. Uh, was also a friend of hers and she asked me she's like Courtney hasn't responded to my email and she said just just email her again she'll reply it was and it just I felt like such an asshole you know what kind I mean what kind of an asshole turns down an opportunity like that you know but it was all just because of how my brain works which isn't great what were some of the things that you had written about as the reluctant adventurer So uh, pretty much, I mean, most of the things in the book are from the column. I I went to a sensory deprivation tank because I'm uh, claustrophobic and afraid of the dark and um, afraid of uh, tiny uh, eels that crawl into your ear canal and eat your brain from, I think, a Star Trek episode. Mm. Um, yeah, anything that's going to head into your orifice, orifici, orifi, exactly. any of your orifice. No. I, yeah. I don't want ants around me because I'm exactly. afraid where they're going to go. Exactly. <laughs> but they don't have tiny tiny eels in, in sensory deprivation tanks. Well, not um, that you know of, but... Exactly. It's, you can't see. That's How do you the know? problem. Yeah. It's pitch black. I you can can't psych see. myself out in the deep end of a pool. Oh, yeah. It started when I was a kid, but I can still do it. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because of Jaws. Thanks, Jaws. Exactly. Somehow that shark's going to be able to crawl up (laughs) through that drain. That's right. You know, squeeze his body through it. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I went to a sensory deprivation tank. I went to a professional cuddler, uh, which we have in Portland. There's, they have a, she has a storefront and everything. Um, I got legally high at work. Um, because I, I worked for Livewire, I worked for a show, so we tried to write stoned, which no one's ever tried to do. <laughs> um, uh, and it didn't go well, right? Yeah, it didn't go well. There were a lot of dating adventures. Mm-hmm. I dated polyamorous guys. Uh, Wait, I got you, a, you did this in the column? Or this um, is, these are now the book things. I did in the column. In the column. Okay. Yeah, in the, I wrote about dating polyamorous men, um, which was interesting. Uh, I took a fellatio class. Th- so there was a lot of stuff that was connected to dating. And then I, of course, uh, went to build your own burrito night at the sex club, <laughs> which, you know, I would highly recommend to people as long as they don't run out of tortillas. Which and you had sex at the sex club. I did. I didn't. I wrote a column about mm-hmm. about the sex club, but I didn't reveal that. Um, so that's a special added uh, added value for the book. Exactly. <laughs> that's a book only uh, revelation. Yeah. And how was that? It was distracting. I would say. I mean, I it sounds so unsexy to me. Not yes. your experience, but just the like. I'm going to have sex in public. But I mean, for some people, that's a huge. The the ultimate, but not to me. No, it it really wasn't. I mean, I uh, you know, we had we had gone on Shibari night. Um, Shibari is the ancient art of Japanese rope torture, and uh, they 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 tie these like really beautiful knots. Um, sometimes uh, in uh, sort of acupressure points mm. <laughs> um, on the body, and then they sort of dangle people from from the ceiling, like um, in these beautiful sort of body shapes. Uh, and so that was really fascinating, but it wasn't that sexy. And everything there was was performative. You know, there was this, there was a room that had a giant picture window in it where you could just watch. And it was these people um, like 69ing 
And there were varying ways that you could either have privacy or not have privacy. But in any case, um, yeah, so we went into the couple's room and the couple's room was just this room filled with, I feel like it was seven or eight futons, uh, just sort of in a, in a sort of a semicircle. And people were just in varying stages of undress and in varying, varying stages of sexual interest. Mm. There really, there was a, Right next to us, it was, as I recall, it was four people, all fully clothed, and they were talking about whether J.J. Abrams would ruin Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and then one couple who had just finished, and and so, yeah. I said, well, we, I, I felt like I needed to check out everything. Mm. So yeah, let's, let's try the, the, the couple's room. And so we sat on the bed and they had sheets, you know, there and I put on multiple sheets onto the bed because yeah, ew. <laughs> uh, and, and we just started making out and I just, I mean, I, I knew that, you know, he was a dude, so he would have sex anywhere, mm. you know? And uh, and he certainly w- wasn't in any way sort of pushing, you know, I just said, well, let's, you know, he's like, do you want to make out? And I was like, sure, you know, let's, let's do all the things. And, and then I started thinking about it and I just thought I'm never coming to a sex club again. Mm-hmm. I mean, I might just, just maybe to introduce it to someone else if they're interested, but it's just not my thing. Someone has a craving for burritos. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. I know a great place. It's uh, not what you're expecting, but. (laughs) Exactly. But they are fantastic. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And I just started thinking like, I I might as well, you know, it's like, you know, if you go to the Louvre, look at the Mona Lisa, you should Mm. probably do that because that's what people do when they go there. So I just, and I also, I think this is a, I think that it doesn't sound like a kind thing to say to yourself, but I think it should be the mantra of most anxious people. And that is no one gives a shit. Mm -hmm. No one gives a shit about your life or what you do, you know, except for, I guess, you know, Paul Ryan and some Republicans care what, you know, women do with their vaginas. <laughs> right. Beyond that, honestly, yeah. like really just walking around in the world. I think a lot of, you know, heavier people, you know, when I was, uh, well, and I'm, I'm still not a light person. Uh, but we, when I was at my heaviest, I didn't want to go to the gym, you know, mm-hmm. I didn't want people to look at me and, and just think, you know, oh, what is she doing here? And, you know, no one cares. No one cares. Like I, I, I saw on a bathroom wall one time and it was attributed to mom and it was, uh, we would, we would, uh, we would care a lot less about what people thought of us if we realized how little they did. Yeah. It's you know? true. My dad used to say, most people are just thinking about themselves, Yeah, which is true. Yeah. Yeah. They're most all- people are just like, oh, and then I said that thing. Why did I say that? They're not thinking about what you said. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And yeah, sometimes we screw up and sometimes we make mistakes and sometimes people say, wow, that was kind of a dick move, you know, but it's very seldom. And and so and I think that that that's what that's what I, I think a lot of people are who struggle with anxiety are struggling with is they all they can think about is what other people are thinking mm. of what they're yes. doing, you know? Totally. Yeah. And yeah, what they thought of what they just did or what they're about to do. Well, that <laughs> that occurred to me when you were talking about how Luke Burbank and Ophira um, approach performing versus how maybe you do and sometimes how I do, which is like anything less than perfect is 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 going to be 
me proving that I am have been disappointing in some way. Huh. Like it's got it like this needs to go perfectly and I my brain is going to fixate on all the the ways in which it doesn't go perfectly. Yes. Yeah. No, as that- opposed to like there's except that it's, I was going to say as opposed to like there's no expectation and this is just a chance to get out there and see what I can do. Yeah. I can't even like that's not how I feel. I wish I did feel, feel I, that way about I it. I do too. I think when we were when we were producing Livewire early on um, you know, there were there were uh, four producers, um, and three of which uh, three of which were we were women, and um, and I would say we weren't non neurotic people. <laughs> all of all of us, you weren't. You, we you weren't were non neurotic. Yeah. We were neurotic, and um, uh, and it to to try to make this shift. I think in I just remember in the first few years this feeling of we don't have any idea what's going to happen, and that's awful to try to shift to, we don't have any idea what's going to happen. How amazing is that? Mm. Right? Like, and, and I don't know that we ever made that full shift, but that, that's what we, these kind of arc that we were working toward as we right. were like having this awareness of that's, of that's how our brain worked. And, and I think that you're talking about, oh yeah, if I screw this up, I'm proving what I think everyone right. thinks yes. of, of me in my head that I'm that I wasn't meant to do this. It's right. that imposter syndrome thing. Totally. You know, that that yeah. And and not thinking, well, okay, I had I just had a two hour show. How am I not thinking that uh one hour and fifty eight minutes of that being fantastic and funny isn't proof that I always should have been doing this? Right. How is it that that's not how and and it feels to me, I get so angry about it because it feels like my brain is somehow working against me. And I'm like, you are part of me. We are in this together. <laughs> yeah, I'm supposed to be on my team. Exactly. But I think, I think that it's, some of it is, um, some of it is prehistoric, you know, like we, the act of getting up in front of a crowd of people, um, you know, in prehistoric times, if your tribe shunned you, it wasn't you wouldn't have a bad day you would die right right like your tribe was your life and so you don't want to do anything mm. that's going to cause people to shun you and certainly a significant right. group of people to shun you and so i think um and and i tell i tell you know i teach students storytelling and and i tell them it's totally fine that you don't feel okay getting in front of a crowd it's not natural you know it's not right. natural for a human being to stand in front of you know for 400 or 4,000 or, you know, a stadium full of people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's a weird thing to do. It is. It definitely is. So what was the experience then? So you had these calls. Well, actually, let me back up. What made you want to write The Reluctant Adventure? For me, I think um, it was a, it was a few things. Um, I, I think one of them, one of them was that I lost this thing. I lost a thing that was, that was amazing that I wished that my brain could have handled Mm -hmm. and I didn't want to lose something else. And so I, I just wondered, is there a way that I can teach my brain? Like you teach a baby (laughs) in the world, this is here to hurt you and this is here to entertain you. And these two things are very different. And, and so I, I wondered if I could, if I could do that by doing these kind of things that scared me a little bit. Mm -hmm. And so that was the column that I suggested. I had a friend who said, Hey, we want, you know, do you want to write a column? And so that was what I suggested that I do, that I kind of do things that scared me, but also that I think, um, when you're, uh, when you have these anxieties, uh, you tend to, uh, 
well, I think that anxiety turns you into a pessimist. I think that it creates these ruts in your neural pathways that say that everything is going to suck. And I think that when I was diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder, I, it, it changed things in my head. I'd always thought of myself as a pessimist and I thought, oh, this isn't, this isn't my nature. This is my pathology. Mm. And is it possible to then change that? I didn't, I didn't know. And, mm. and so, and, 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 and I wanted my life to be more interesting. I wanted to, I wanted my fears to stop, to stop stopping me essentially from, right. from trying things. And this, this, when I would imagine things and, and not imagining them in a positive way stopped me from doing them. Mm-hmm. And that's a super boring life, you know? And how, what was the criteria for what you would and wouldn't take on? I didn't, I didn't, I didn't want to do anything that really would put me into physical peril because I knew that that was too much for my brain to, to take. Mm -hmm. So that I, I didn't want to bungee jump. I didn't want to jump out of planes. It really was, it, I needed to, when I thought about doing it, I needed to be physically uncomfortable. Like that feeling that you get in your stomach and and your chest, Mm -hmm. that tightness. Um, I wanted it to be something that that actually made made me uncomfortable to think about. And not and choose because I'm a person who doesn't want to be in physical peril either. Yeah. But can you say a little more about why why that was too much? I yeah. Let me ask my biased. Not biased. It's the wrong word. Let me ask my um uh my loaded question because what I'm wondering is is it because you actually believe that those truly are too dangerous because that's where I would be coming from and that is like a a pessimist anxious way to look at it and yet at the same time like but those things are dangerous exactly (laughs) like I could actually die jumping out of a plane like Mm. there's no question right um and there that was absolutely part of it that my and and that uh and that's something that you know, moving forward, I, I should look at because I think, um, like flying, if you look at the actual statistics of flying there, it's far more dangerous for you to get on a highway. Mm. And we just ignore that every day getting on the, getting on the highway because we need to get to work. Right. Well, I've learned to ignore that. I've somehow learned to ignore Mm. (laughs) those numbers. So it seems like I should be able to teach my brain to take in the statistics of how many people die jumping out of airplanes or how many people die bungee cord jumping. Right. Um, but I can't get it out of my head Mm-mm. that one person did, Yes, you know, like because one person did, it's absolutely possible for me. Right. Um, but I think, I really do think that, that um, most of it for me was just, I, you know, I was doing this by the seat of my pants. It was sort of an experiment and I didn't have a therapist who was just sort of overseeing the whole thing. And I didn't want to do anything that would like break my brain. Mm -hmm. And I just felt like if I were standing in an airplane in that doorway with the wind flying in my face, you know, that uh, my brain would break. (laughs) Just be like later we're done. We're done here. (laughs) We are no longer friends. (laughs) Um, okay, so what was the process then of taking the columns and and actually writing the book? Um, well, I so I I essentially just uh, I dug deeper. I would write those. I would just to be honest, I would write those columns essentially when they were due. You know, the day they were due. I am not a pre planner or proactive um, in any way, and uh, and so 
they needed a lot of love. Those columns needed a lot of love. And um, after I turned in my first draft, essentially, I I just I just dug deeper. I dug dug deeper emotionally, and um, and gave just a little bit more flavor and context to all of the stories when I wrote the first draft. And um, and my note back from I got a well I got a couple of I got a couple of big notes back from my editor. One is that um, I had been writing uh, essays for I'd I'd written over two hundred essays mm-hmm. for Livewire, and she said every chapter is just tied up in this little bow and there's no reason for me to keep reading, (laughs) you know, like that's what you do when you write essays. And so that was problematic. So you had to untie them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) How did you do that? Um, I think that it was really learning, (laughs) learning that instead of um, seeing each one of my little stories as its own little piece, I had to learn to see everything in terms of the arc of my mm-hmm. life for that year. It really does read as a memoir. Yeah. I th- I, and that was really my editor, honestly. She really, we actually went through and, and the book's got you know, a, a few different arcs in it. And we really went through and we kind of looked at what the arcs were for each and kind of tried to pay attention, you know, to each arc in different places. Um, and and learning yeah just learning to see <laughs> learning to see and it, it it's kind of hard for us to look at i think our lives as as an arc or a story you know and find meaning in them it's <laughs> i mean it's one of i think the joys of writing a memoir mm-hmm. is um is this reframing that we get to do of yeah. our experiences and actually finding something good uh, you know that that came out of something difficult i think is i mean that's that's a tool that psychologists actually use with their patients. Right. Right. Reframing. Yeah, exactly. So it's great that as memoir writers, we get to do that and really concentrate on these stories. And, and especially for a pessimist like myself to be able to look back, uh, you know, and I tell this to, to my students, um, uh, and when, when they're writing about their own lives, like, if you can change, you know, if you can change a story that happened to you and you're never going to make something that was shitty, great, but if you can find something that you got out of it, and if you can look at it in, if you can find something funny in it, if you can find any joy or pleasure from that story, you're changing your life, really, mm-hmm. right? Because if we're made up of our stories, you have the capacity to really change your life by changing your life story and your history, you know? And that's, I think, very powerful to be able to do. Yeah, so what okay now now I'm really getting into the weeds of like the process but I am curious um because I and I I my listeners know this because I've talked about it here and there like I have really struggled to figure out memoir wise like what is my story Mm -hmm. you know and I've like done it a a few different times and I just I'm I'm too close to I mean I'm not I I refuse to think that I can't do this like I know I can someday but like I'm so close to it it's hard for me to see it in that narrative way so like what were obviously romance was one of the arcs sure dating what were Mm -hmm. some of the other arcs well so my mental health was was an arc um dating was an arc my body mm-hmm. was an arc in there for sure um and i think and my work my work was an arc right so that i didn't the work was very kind of yeah sporadic in there the work arc i remember uh okay so full disclosure i when did this book come out remind me july 31st of this okay. year so i read this a while ago i loved it i laughed out loud i was I felt like when a 
when you have like a great friend who visits and then leaves and you miss them like when it ended i was like i don't i like i want this voice in my life i don't want this to be over like i that's how much i loved it everyone should go out and read it oh, thank um, you that's really that's lovely but hear. i am pregnant and have forgetful pregnancy brain mm-hmm. so in a way I'm like tabula rasa. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's as if I, it's, I was going to say it's as if I didn't read it. That's not true though. But like, there were so many things as I was going through that I was like, Oh, I would love, you know, I got to ask about that. I got to ask about that. Mm-hmm. And now those are just been, they've been wiped, washed by away by hormones time. <laughs> yeah. and hormones. <laughs> um, but I do remember you had a moment when you were trying on polyamory yes. or dating a polyamorous guy where you realized it did it wasn't working for you well well that just or a line you didn't want to cross exactly that yeah so i was dating joe who was a polyamorous married man and um he was polyamorous for i thought the sweetest reason i'd ever heard in my life his wife wanted to be polyamorous and she was younger than him and he Um, And he really felt like she hadn't kind of sown her oats yet Mm -hmm. and he was done and he loved her and wanted to hold on to her. And he believed that if she was able to date other men, that she would realize that that other men are flawed just like he was and that she would love him more. Oh, my God. This is breaking my heart. It was heartbreaking. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it was incredibly sweet. Uh, A sweet reason to just fuck a lot of women. Wait, was that in the book? Yeah. Yeah. How did I not remember that? Yeah. Well, and yeah, it's, yeah, I, I, I talk about that. Yeah. Um, just, but just a little bit. Okay. Sort of in passing. Gotcha. Um, so yeah, I, anyway, don't, I don't remember being like, oh my God, what, that's so sweet of him. But I maybe know. I did feel that at the time. Well, it's hard. It's, and it's hard to think of someone, I think, especially as women, um, you know, and of course there are, there are tons of polyamorous women, but in general, I think women are, you know, it's a little harder to think that way. Yeah. Um, and just compartmentalize sexuality. Although polyamorous people in general actually want uh, multiple emotional relationships mm-hmm. as well. Um, there Question. are obviously lots of different kinds of non-monogamy and polyamory. But. Was that ultimately, did that pan out for them? Like, are they happily together? Because when I hear, okay. Uh, duh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess the listeners his, can't see me shaking my head. Yeah. It did not work out for his, them. His beautiful reason for this to me is like, that's a, that's a, a um, sort of fantastical take on how, I believe this would all go down. I, yeah. I mean, based on my anecdotal experience, which is, you know, I've, I've, I've really, I've maybe known 10, 10 polyamorous people Mm. in my life and dated, you know, I think three. Um, But based on my anecdotal experience, it feels to me like polyamorous relationships. um, If they are polyamorous from the beginning, Mm -hmm. that feels like it's going to be significantly more successful in my experience. The ones that that I knew of that started after the relationship had right. already started as monogamous. Every one of those that I've known has failed. But again, this is that's all my anecdotal mm-hmm. experience. Um, but in any case, so so what? I'm so, I'm yeah. so sorry. I, now I got to know more about this Joe about guy, Joe. Even though apparently I already knew it. Went back when I read the book. <laughs> um, so were they having marital problems though, and that's why they opened it up? And then he thought she would ultimately like come back to him. I think. 
I don't think that they were in trouble, okay. you know, and, and same, you know, there was the, this other, this other polyamorous married guy that I dated, they were on vacation and they both thought the same woman was hot mm-hmm. and sort of at the same time decided, let's do this. Let's try this. Um, so I don't, and I don't think that, but, but I don't know that they were, that they, that Joe was, that his marriage was in trouble. I do think that he clearly had some uh concerns right right or he wouldn't have done it but they're not together now and they're not together now okay no um and he tried oh my gosh he also he read this book called she comes first Mm -hmm. extremely effective highly recommended (laughs) (laughs) well he might just be an amazing study but uh it it yeah it worked very well so what (laughs) happened for you with joe so uh, i i we i think we dated for a couple of months and uh he was the one that that went to the sex club that i went to the sex club with it was very funny when i told my mom i went to dinner at my mom's house and told her that i was gonna do this i was going to the sex club with joe and um and she was just and she was just drinking her wine spritzers just more voraciously um (laughs) and uh and she, and she just was looking concerned. And I was like, Mom, it's fine. He has he has a membership. And she's like, oh, that's worse. <laughs> you just made it worse. I didn't think it could be worse. And now it's worse. Um, but anyway, uh, and he but evidently his wife wanted the membership. Um, okay. And he maybe he was lying to me. But I but I but I I don't think, you know, we had a lot of conversations about his marriage. But the first night that I was out with him, you know, we were at this bar and and he said, oh, uh, and I said, oh, because he was getting texts. And I said, oh, do you have to go home? And he's like, oh, no, we have to be out for a couple more hours because my wife's still at the house. having She's on a date right now. And and this was my first experience mm-hmm. with this. And so I just had to smile and pretend like that didn't sound crazy to me. Yeah. You know, just like, uh, oh, I can't. I Because imagining, like imagining buying a couch with someone, you know, and, you, you know, maybe you get it at this antique market that you love that you visit every week. I don't I don't want some other bitch's ass on the cute couch that I bought right. at the antique market. Like, yeah. no. Well, fine. She can come to the house, but she's not allowed to sit anywhere. <laughs> right. No or touch anything. Yeah. And she has to bring her own toilet paper. Exactly. So and this is all me. This is all my issues. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I again, it can absolutely work for other people. But um, in any case, that happened on our first date, and and he invited me at one point da- back to his house for a date. He said, oh, well, my wife's going to be out this night. Why don't you come over? And I knew that he had kids. Mm-hmm. And I just, it did not, it just didn't feel okay. Like, I, I, I just, I didn't want to be the reason that he had to explain what polyamory was to one of his kids. Right. And also, you know, and, and but at the same time, I was like, I wanted to see him. And I and I and I know this is completely this was very illogical, I think, at the time. But I thought, so if he was gay, would I say, oh, it's fine to be gay, but not if you have kids? Like in my Mm. head, I thought, am I in or am I not in? Do I believe that this lifestyle lifestyle or do I do I believe that being polyamorous is is a valid way to live and and okay regardless? And it doesn't matter what kids think. (sighs) So, so in my head, I was like, it's fine. I'll, I'll do it because mm. I need, I, supposedly, I think that this is all fine. And so I went to his house and, you know, his kids were in bed and they were on another floor and we were whispering and he's like, you really don't have to whisper like my, you know, they, they sleep like the dead. But did you know whether they knew or not? I didn't talk to him about that, but 
based on just the way you know you can come over after they're in bed makes me think right that kids didn't yeah but that's the thing the kids didn't know the kids know right like you yeah. remember your parents parties when mm-hmm. you were a kid and hearing the stuff that you knew that you weren't supposed to hear or the the jokes that you weren't supposed to hear like we heard everything and we just pretended that we didn't right. and so i that made me uncomfortable and and then we so we went into their guest bedroom and he he had to clear the kids like soccer equipment off the bed um <laughs> and and that just it just felt wrong and then and then he had to leave the door slightly ajar just in case one mm. of the girls right woke up during the night they needed him yeah their dad <sighs> that they don't know is on a date with this other person right and I just and 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 I and I ended up sleeping with him that that night, um, and I I say like that because it was very good sleeping with him. It was very pleasurable, um, but that's not a good enough reason. Like I so what ended up happening? Like I slept with him, but I was completely distracted. Mm-hmm. Like I was looking at the door the whole time. I was listening to the door the whole time. It just, and I should have just, I should have just been like, you know what, this, you know, but it was, it was, it was, it was fine. Um, you should have been like, what, you know what, this is not working for me. Is that, well, like, I mean, I don't feel right about this. Well, yeah, I just, I should have, and, and it's in, in no way was like, oh, he forced, you know, no, yeah. I was in the whole time, you know, it, uh, he just wasn't that kind of person. It was really me. It was just, you know, it was me. I should have recognized my own discomfort more mm-hmm. and just said, you know, I feel weird about this. I feel bad. I feel I pictured his daughter, you know, walking through the door, like holding a Barbie doll by her hair. And, you know, like the whole weirdly, she looked like Cindy Lou Who in my head, you know, with his giant eyes totally. and a little curly yeah. cue on top of her <laughs> head. And just like so when that that was the one thing that I did for this book that I thought that was I never want to do that again and a situation where I should have listened to myself more Mm -hmm. and not rationalized and not you know I I did these I think mental pretzels in order to figure out a way to kind of make this be right for myself Mm. one and one of them really was hey don't be judgmental about people and their choices you know and I don't want to be a judgmental person Um, but at the same time that to me figuring out a way to navigate being a polyamorous couple and having children feels very complicated mm-hmm. you know um because i do think that kids know things that you don't think that they know right um and i don't know what the solution is to that but i just know that i didn't want to be involved in that mm-hmm. you know in what what however that that ended up right ever since you mentioned the like but if he were gay da 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 then i'm like it's like a like a little thing opened up in my brain of like, oh, I never thought of it that way. Do you do you equate the two? Polyamory and being gay? Uh-huh. Oh no, not at all. It's just that I, you know, uh, I it's just that I it, I was just making a kind of a comparison where it's just like I have you know I have gay friends, I adore them and want them to be able to do whatever it is that they want to do with their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's and it's not about whether or not I approve of their behavior. Right. You know, um, even though I could give a shit who has sex with who, you know, yeah. um, 
And so I just sort of did this mental right. comparison. And yeah. when there really, there really is no, you well, know, it's like it's my not brain like, is trying to find a reason why it's like, you know, okay for why, like the, the way polyamory is not the same of like, well, but you could explain to a child like this is, you know, daddy's in love with this man or whatever. Whereas like polyamory is like much, seems much more hard to explain to a child. Yeah. It is so sexual. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think they're, they're very different situations, which is why, like, I, I, you know, I, looking back on it, I think that my, the mental, the mental pretzels that I, that I was making (laughs) were wrong. Like they were, it was just, you know, it wasn't, I think, a valid comparison. Mm -hmm. They're very, very different situations. You know, you're not making, when you're gay, you're not making a choice about, about who you're having sex with, Mm -hmm. right? Like, you're gay because you were born gay right you know so they're different they're different they're significantly different in that way alone but that's what i'm wondering would polyamorous people say they were born that way too oh um i would imagine absolutely yeah you know i mean there are people who are um i'm i am i would be very jealous if my boyfriend was having sex with someone else and i think that there are people who are absolutely able to to not not feel any jealousy at all and i think that you can ap- you can absolutely have healthy polyamorous relationships mm-hmm. where everyone is honest and um and and happy because they don't feel that you right. know i mean i definitely would admire someone who was able to not <laughs> yeah. feel same yeah to not feel that did you try polyamory did you try to be personally polyamorous? Well, I mean, I definitely was because I was sleeping with multiple people. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, but I don't think I wasn't. I wasn't deeply emotionally involved with with them. You right. know, I was. I was kind of casually dating multiple people. Multiple people at once for the first time in my life. Right. I need to tell you guys about Every Plate. Allison Rosen is your new best friend. Is supported in part by Every Plate. Experience full plates and fuller wallets with America's best value meal kit. So every plate is um, a different price point for the same company that brings you HelloFresh and Green Chef. Uh, And those meal kits are great, but they can be kind of expensive. But here comes every plate to level the playing field. Get meals you'll enjoy and your bank account will love delivered right to your door. Enjoy amazing chef-designed meals for just $4.99 per serving. Think of it this way. One meal is the same price as one cup of coffee. Coffee. Recipes come together in about 30 minutes, definitely faster than a trip to the grocery store. Less time deciding what to cook means more time spent enjoying good food with family. Unless you don't like your family, and then it's more time enjoying good food while you're hiding from your family. I don't know why I'm saying that. I love my family. Every plate's easy to follow recipes take the stress out of dinner time. Every plate does the meal planning, shopping, prepping for you, taking the time-consuming guesswork out of cooking. Never buy more ingredients than you need because every plate's recipes come with everything already pre-measured. And I received and made the Mediterranean chicken grain bowl, which started my recent love of couscous. I recently talked on the episode uh on a recent episode about choking on like inhaling like one grain of couscous 
and the disaster that resulted. However, nothing's going to get me off of my couscous love. And I can thank every plate for igniting my couscous love and also my son's couscous love. I also made Southern style cheeseburgers and honey glazed pork chops, and they were all so good. For 50% off your first box of every plate, go to everyplate.com and enter code BESTFRIEND. That's everyplate.com code BESTFRIEND for 50% off your first box. Is there a relationship between this this project, this undertaking, and the timing of when you met the man that you've, you've now been with for a few years? Like, do you think you had changed a bit and that put you in a position where you were more open to love or anything like that? Or was it just like coincidence? I don't think that it was a coincidence. I mean, one is just because I was clearly, you know, on a mission to sort of teach myself what I liked and what I didn't like. Um, I was, you know, I was in my mid 40s. And I uh, and I'd had one significant adult relationship in my life. And I think that, you know, and you were a late bloomer. I was very late bloomer. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. My first. My, yeah. My first adult relationship. I was 34. So uh, and I'm not Mormon or Amish. <laughs> um, so or a nun. I wasn't a nun. Right. I was none of those things. Um, so, yeah, I really felt like, oh, we we have relationships with people because first first of all in the hopes that they're going to work out but what what those relationships that we have before we end up with whoever we end up with end up being our our teaching relationships mm-hmm. really they teach us you know uh what are what we what we like what we don't like uh personally emotionally sexually what our deal breakers are how to fight all of these things and i was and i knew that in order to to be a be good at being in a relationship you had to try to do this you had to try to get as many behind you as you could <laughs> and that kind of i just wanted to meet a lot of people mm-hmm. and so i i did um and i think that by the time i met um number 28 i had learned i'd certainly learned what i liked sexually which was I was so happy about, you know, that I, that I'd really, that I feel like I'd really figured that out. Um, plus I like doubled my number during the course of the year. Um, and I think everyone, everyone's looking to do that. You know, (laughs) if you want tips on how to do that, I can give them to you. Um, no, don't pay attention to your number ever. Um, but, uh, but so I, so sexually, I absolutely learned what I liked. Um, and emotionally, I think, I, I think that I had met, I'd met tons of guys who worked in tech, Mm -hmm. I guess. And he works, he works in tech. Um, a lot of kind of introverts and, um, but they weren't funny. Mm -hmm. None of them were funny. Um, and, uh, which is terrible and judgmental, I know, but it was very, very hard to find a sense of humor. And I, and I'm not really sure why that is, um, on a, on a dating site. Mm-hmm. Um, it was on, I was on mostly okay Cupid. Um, but it was, it was very difficult to find people who used humor in their profiles. Right. And that seemed crazy to me, you know, like people love humor, but I think that maybe they were afraid if I make jokes in my profile, then people are going to think I don't take, I'm not taking this seriously or something. It's weird because it's like, if you are a, a person who appreciates humor and who is funny, that is usually such an important thing to find in someone else that you'd think that it would be like a bat signal you put in your profile. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so, but that, it was very difficult to find. But in any case, I think with him, 
it was what I realized was that I was looking for someone who really wanted to talk about ideas, um, who was really curious. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, and I think that's what I found with him emotionally. So it was this kind of combination of things that I had prepared myself for as I'd met all these people, which is what people do over the course of their whole mm-hmm. lives as opposed to trying to shove it into one year. Yeah. I also was a late bloomer and I feel like I I don't think I did it as deliberately as you did, but I was like I've got to make up for lost time. <laughs> exactly. Like, and some of the dumb shit I did in my 20s was like the dumb shit that people a lot of people I know did in high school. Oh, yeah? I think so. Yeah, with like experimenting with drugs and stuff like that. Like I missed all of that in high school. Yeah. So then, yeah, I was was kind of a latecomer to to all of that stuff. And then how did you meet your husband? Um, So I met my husband. I was on the Adam Carolla show and he was a listener and he uh, read some stuff that I had written and like it really, some sort of personal emotional stuff that I had, had written and it kind of spoke to him and then he contacted me and uh complimented my writing and i wrote back and said thank you and it's weird from the moment that he reached out to me i because i i would get emails from listeners and for some reason his was just like i like put it in a different category in my brain i don't know how to explain it Mm -hmm. but but i knew that but but also this is a listener so like i'm not I'm not really going to get close to someone who contacts me this way, but at the same time, like, but, but there's just something different about him about the way, cause then we sort of would, we started writing back and forth a little bit and there's just something about the way he used language that it like, it was very similar to the way I did. Um, and I felt this comfort with him and like, I, I looked him up on Facebook right away, um, which was different than what I would normally do if someone just emailed me. And then he asked me out, he asked if he suggested that we get dinner and I had a date that, and I wasn't dating a lot at the time. I had a date that night, but when I got his email, like suggesting that we get dinner um, and it was like long, it was like, you know, by the way, I'm in the industry as well and blah, blah, blah. And you know, like almost like, here's, here's why you should consider this offer. It was very sweet. <laughs> like his, you know, like I was in a relationship for seven years. I got out of it like a year and a half ago, blah, blah, blah. I'm, I'm this age and here's what I do. And da, da, da. Um, and so I, it was like a, a nice, sweet email. And then I went on this date and I was sort of like, it's almost like if you have a bad meal, but you know, you have like a nice leftover at home or something. I was like, oh, I've got this nice thing to go home to. Um, even though I also knew that like, I don't know if I feel comfortable meeting him. Mm-hmm. Um, I got home. He had taken it back. He was like, sorry. Sometimes I, that was like, sometimes I get a little over eager or whatever. Um, and I can't remember the, the time in between when he took it back and when <laughs> and I there's was like, no take backs. I was there's like, no take backs. Oh, okay. I can't remember the time in between when he took it back and when he's like, but I have a better idea. It may have been the same email, but he and his friends were starting this he had written a graphic novel and then he and his friends were starting a publishing company, like an imprint of another publishing company. And he had some ideas that he's like, I think you'd be, you'd be great if you wanted to try writing this. It wasn't just graphic novels, like a try writing this kind of thing. Like I said, I can't remember. And I think that he really thought that I would forget how he had originally approached it and just Mm -hmm. be like, Oh, this is just a business opportunity. Um, (laughs) Like I really can't remember if it was the same email 
or if it, there was some time in between. But I was intrigued by this idea of potentially writing a book for them. And it gave me this way to interact with him that I felt comfortable with. Huh. So then we started talking about, you know, the potentially writing a book and like what they were looking for. And then I think it was probably a few weeks later. I still have all the emails, which like I think he's mortified by. But I could go find out how long it was. Like a few sometime later, he was like suggested that we meet up and then he could give me some books as an, an you know example of what they're looking for. Which again, for me, this was just like a comfortable, safe, like non-romantic way to meet this person that I was in, that I felt drawn to. Mm-hmm. So we met up, and um, and we talked for a while, and then as soon as I got in my car, like I instantly wanted to text him, and I just like kept wanting to talk to him. I didn't text him because I was driving. <laughs> Although I think it might have been, I don't know how illegal it was then. Um, <laughs> but then we continued talking and then we saw each other again. And we were just friends for like the first, I don't know, five times we hung out or so. Um, I had moved back from New York. I was living at my parents' house until I, but I was working up in LA. They are in Orange County. So I was commuting and um, I was just like, my life is in so much disarray right now. There's no way that I'm going to fall in. This is, there's no way that this is like the right time for me to get into a relationship. So I told, I think I, I think he told me that he had feelings for me in this very non pressury way, uh-huh. which is I like, a, it's a hard needle to thread. And you had just been working together and you hadn't had any dinners or drinks. Or we anything. Had, no, we had uh-huh. like, we had, yeah, we had it. It had become a friendship. Mm-hmm. I was look trying to figure out where I wanted to live in L.A. So he, we like we, <laughs> so much of our early getting to know each other was just driving around and looking at different neighborhoods, um, and yeah, we had met up. We would meet up after I recorded my show for drinks um, and stuff like that. So it had it. Yeah, it it wasn't. It was no longer professional. It was just friendship. And I and every time I would hug him to say goodbye, like the hugs would get longer. Aww. So then um, he took me out. I thought I had to work on my birthday, and I was kind of relieved because I was like, "Oh, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't too. I don't want to celebrate my birthday. I'll just work." It's like a good. Now I have something to do that night, and I don't have to think about should I do a, a drinks or something or other. But then I it turned out I didn't have to work, and he asked if he could take if he could take me out to dinner and I said yes and we went out to dinner and had a great time and then afterwards he's, he wanted to let me know that he had these feelings for me again in this non-pressury way and I explained to him that I just don't think that I would be any good in a relationship right now like my life is you know I'm not on terra firma I'm in my childhood bedroom <laughs> it's crazy <laughs> um but I don't really believe in the friend zone. I believe that if two people are meant to be together, like eventually they will be. And you know, I haven't, I haven't put you in it. I haven't put any limits on this in my head. It's just like not a good time for me. You're not zoned at all. Exactly. No zone. (laughs) No zone. (laughs) And then at the end of the night, when he was dropping me back, back, I was 35 at the time when he's Mm -hmm. dropping me back off at my parents' house, (laughs) we went to hug. And then I, he says that like, he went to kiss me on the cheek and I turned my face, but I didn't, I don't know. I guess I did, but I wasn't like trying to, I wasn't trying to make him plant one on me, but then we kissed (laughs) and then we have been together ever since. Oh, so it's just kind of crazy. It was, yeah, it was very unexpected. 
Um, and, and I think like a very sweet story. Yeah, um, it absolutely is. Well, and I think this idea, it's the same thing as people say, oh, well, I mean, it's, it's actually not exactly the same. When people say, oh, we can't have kids now, you know, we're not ready. And it's like, I think you're never truly ready right. to have children based on what I've heard about it. And it's the, it's like, I think that this idea of sort of waiting, absolutely, if you're feeling completely off kilter mm-hmm. and, you know, I'm, I'm mentally not healthy, then that's a terrible time to be right. in a relationship. But this, I, I think that a lot of us have this idea that I'm going to fix everything about my life mm-hmm. and then I'll be ready to have someone in it. And that's, we, that's just not realistic. Yeah. You know, I think I had just had such, I had such a, un, a, a pattern of bad and unhealthy relationships that it was a pleasant surprise to me that this one was so healthy and like good and different from the get go. Do you think that it would have been different if you would have started it just romantically from off the bat? Like, what do you think changed because you guys did start off that way as a sort of a business or collaborative situation? I think I got to know him and so I felt comfortable and I trusted him before anything physical had happened because I, like the second, in the past, the second I started being physically involved with someone, it became like this thing that I had to manage. And are they still into me? Do they still like me? This constant, like constant counting of how frequently they're in touch with me and, and are they losing interest in me? And I would really lose myself. I, but that was my pattern years before. And I had really tried, you know, I'd gone to therapy and I'd read a thousand self-help books and I had been celibate for, you know, a number of years. Cause I'm like, I have to, ch- I like some, this is not working. I have to change. Um, and maybe he was sort of catching me on the tail end. I was like still in that mindset of like, I don't know how to do relationships right. And I don't want to do the bullshit of my past. So I'm just going to play it real safe. Um, I love this idea of starting a relationship um, not in that space of constantly obsessing about when they're going to contact yeah. you. Like you were just starting with him from this comfortable place mm-hmm. where it wasn't all about chem- brain, you know, your screwed up brain chemistry, right? You know, and limerence, right? That, that I love, I love yeah. that phrase, and I loved that book, Love and Limerence. That's that's so me. Yeah. <laughs> I would happily drive like nine hours to see someone's band play. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, that sounds so awful. <laughs> oh. I exaggerated a little bit. But I don't want to drive three minutes to see someone's <laughs> band play. <laughs> Because you know there's going to be three opening bands and yeah, they're all going to suck balls. Every one of them. Well, oftentimes I was driving to see someone in one of the opening bands. So, <laughs> <laughs> Right, right. Yeah. So, yeah. No, no offense to sucking balls. Which, right. I mean, it can sometimes be great. Yeah. Just a bit, it depends on your mood. Exactly. <laughs> so I have a couple questions that people sent in on patreon um i'm on patreon patreon.com slash allison rosen is where you go there's different you can subscribe there's different reward levels and you can get uh bonus episodes behind the scenes content there's a i just did my live stream yesterday it was very fun all sorts of juicy info in that um yeah so much access to me you'll beg me to leave you alone and but one of the perks is you get your questions you get to ask your questions on the show ahead of just the commoner so here's the questions that came in over patreon when we 
says what's her this song is guaranteed to make me dance song oh um use me by bill withers um yeah it's 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 definitely old school but oh yeah the the beat of that song it's it's just one of the sexiest songs i think i've ever heard i love that i song. don't know if i know that i've got to, got to go find this song Oh yeah, God, I'm- please stop. I think I know it. I know it. Just stop making that noise. That actually, but it was fairly accurate. I yeah, feel like. no, that's why it, it called it up. Okay, Jennifer says, piggybacking on Nikki Glazer's recent episode that Transcendental Meditation has helped her anxiety and depression and she wish- wishes she had been doing this since she was a kid. Is there some tool she, you, wishes she had as a kid to make her less anxious? Oh my gosh. Uh, I would say two things. One, um, that breath is magical. And I think that um, a lot of people uh, who get upset or are fearful uh, get angry when people say breathe. Mm-hmm. But it's not it's not woo woo. It's science. Yeah. I mean, you you expand out, you breathe through your diaphragm, you expand out your belly. And there are chemicals that are released that tell your brain that everything's OK, because that's everything is OK when you're breathing deeply. Um, and, and it can also trigger your brain when you're breathing in a shallow way. It can trigger your brain to think that you're having an anxiety attack. So breath, I would say absolutely. If you're struggling, um, uh, breath is magical. And I think Nikki is right. Um, meditation in any way, you know, there is, uh, the calm app I think is really great. Um, and uh, just teaches you very basic breathing techniques. And you just there's a ball that you can just follow and breathe. So I would highly recommend that. And also mindfulness. Mindfulness for anxious people. I believe that those of us who, who have anxiety, we have it because we are either living in the past or the future or both at the same time. We are desperately regretting mistakes that we made that we think everyone noticed and changed everything for the worse. And we're also looking at the future and imagining how terrible something is going to be or how much or how um, you're, I'm going to die alone with dementia and, and homeless, all this stuff. And what mindfulness teaches you to do is to just look at what's in front of you. What am I dealing with now? What's in front of me right now? And I think, you know, I, this is another thing that I talk to my, to, to my students about. If they're anxious about getting up in front of their, their classmates and doing a presentation, you have a PowerPoint that you have to make. And all you can think about are all those people in the room and how they're going to laugh at you and you're going to screw up. But, and that for you is a, is a nine or a 10 anxiety wise. But if you're making a PowerPoint presentation, what do you have to do right now? I have to write one sentence on one slide of a presentation. How much anxiety does that one sentence give you? Like a point two, maybe, you know, if you can just learn to concentrate on what's exactly in front of you right now 
and and I mean by that like the smallest thing um it's it changes the way your brain works because it's not it's just not living in the future anymore mm-hmm. and that to me when I can do it I mean I was just in San Francisco and um we we touristed the living shit out of that town we went to places we went to the Musée Mécanique on Fisherman's Wharf and toured a, a World War II boat and um and but one and one of the things that we did was go to Tonga, the tiki bar in the Fairmont Hotel, which I uh, that hotel is absolutely gorgeous. And you just have to cl- we had to climb this insane hill. And I started using mindfulness because I would look at the top of the hill and my chest, I would just get this feeling in my chest. I'm like, I can't do that. There's no way I can get to the top of that. I am not a sporty person. And I started just looking down at my feet. And asking myself, can I handle this step? I can handle this step. I can totally handle this one. Oh, and I can handle this one too. And I just didn't look up at the worst of it, you know? Ooh, sorry. That's, that's okay. Um, yeah. And that to me, it, it, that's, that's so changed everything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it was, we were just on our way to a tiki bar. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't some life changing experience, but, but still, cause when I, I very can... much relate to that, like that hill, I don't think so. Right. <laughs> that exactly. feeling. Yeah, exactly. And the thing is like, you, you can, you know, you actually can, mm-hmm. it just feels like you can't cause you're looking at the end instead of just looking at your, looking at what's directly in front of you, which right. you can absolutely handle. I started practicing some level of mindfulness. I did IVF mm-hmm. and I used to have a huge needle phobia. So when I would start to feel myself getting very anxious about giving myself a shot, I just, especially if I had to like, I have to prepare, there's a whole thing, a whole rigmarole of like preparing the syringe and mixing the drug and then da da da. <clears throat> and I'd, I'd start to like feel myself like kind of floating away from what I'm doing. And then I'd be like, just, one step at a time. Okay. Right now I'm just mixing this and then I'm just doing that. Um, and regarding the breathing thing, I went through a phase where I was having panic attacks a little bit years ago and I talked to my therapist at the time about it. And what she said is that oftentimes when you start to get nervous, you start breathing in a more shallow way. And then that just makes every, you know, makes it worse. Yeah. So breathe deeply. And now that's like my number one go-to if I feel myself getting panicky at all. And yeah. it, they think, knock on wood, I feel like I'm jinxing it. I'm not, a super, <laughs> I'm not a superstitious person, but I definitely feel like I'm jinxing it by saying this out loud. Knock on wood, I have not had a panic attack since then. Wow, that's Like great. it has stopped every, yeah. yeah. No, it really changes things. When you have an, the, the, a big problem with having panic attacks and anxiety attacks is once you have had one, your fear of having another mm-hmm. one can cause you to have another one. Yes. Right? Because if you run, uh, that same shortness of breath is is what happens to you when you have a panic attack. It's why I can't smoke weed. Because a lot of the stuff that happens to your body when you smoke weed, you start to sort of mentally dissociate. You Your breathing can get a little mm-hmm. shallow. It's all stuff that happens when you have an anxiety attack. And so you get into this feedback loop where your body goes, oh no, I think I'm having an anxiety attack and your brain is like, oh my gosh, we are. Then that increases the mm. physical symptoms and it starts this terrible feedback loop. Right. Um, I actually started taking beta blockers, mm-hmm. which uh, lower your blood pressure um, and uh, and kind of stop the physical symptoms of an anxiety attack. Uh, don't take them if you have low, low blood pressure. <laughs> um, but 
that is very magical because you have the feedback loop where your brain goes, you know, your body might feel a little anxious and your brain goes, oh, no, we're having an anxiety attack. And your body goes, oh, no, we're not. <laughs> it just kind of <laughs> stops it in its tracks. Right. Um, and so I started doing that when I was performing. But obviously, do stuff where you whatever you can do to not have to take any drugs for this mm. benzos like xanax and um and ativan they just are not good for your brain you know so i i absolutely recommend meditation and mindfulness and breathing all did of it. you ever have a panic attack on stage oh yeah multiple times how did that go it's nightmarish because that has always been one of my thankfully i've not had that experience mm-hmm. but that's been one of my fears yeah always yeah. It was very strange because I'd been hosting the show and we had audiences of 650, 700, whatever, big, big audiences. And the first time I had a panic attack on stage, it was at a breakfast that I was hosting that was for a nonprofit. And there were probably 300 people there. And, uh, you know, part of my, I have OCD and, and it's intrusive thought OCD. Um, and so your brain tells you these strange things. And I became obsessed and I'm still slightly obsessed with this, how, with how sort of magical it is that if you're reading something on stage, you're you're reading ahead, and yet you're at the same time you're reading ahead, you're speaking these words, and as you read ahead, your brain is figuring out the intonations that you need to give all of these words that you're reading. That is such fertile territory for the beginning of floating away from yourself. Exactly. I became obsessed with the fact that my brain was going to stop knowing how yeah. to do that. And that's, and that triggered an anxiety attack and my throat closed up. Oh God. So, and I was having trouble breathing and, um, it was so sweet. Actually, the mayor of our town, Sam Adams, who was, who was an acquaintance of mine, um, was in the audience and I started clearing my throat and I, and I, and I was just apologizing and I just said, Oh, I'm sorry. I, I must be getting a cold or something. And it's, and he, he brought me a cough drop. (laughs) left his table and brought a cough drop up to the stage but I wasn't getting a cold like right I and I managed I did manage to kind of push through that and Mm -hmm. the way that the way that it worked for me was that I and this actually may make it worse for some people but I just looked at people and I spoke to them and so I wasn't speaking to this amorphous group of people Mm -hmm. anymore and this is and but that is a technique like that uh that that you do tell people to do if they're if they're giving a speech especially if there's someone in the audience that they know and know that 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 person cares about them to speak specifically Mm -hmm. to them because it does change the way that you feel and somehow that that's what ended up calming me down but it's like being trapped on a plane i can't just step off this stage i've got to finish this thing that right I'm doing. i used to do um a segment every saturday morning on channel 4 news when i lived in new york and it was it was very early which i think already made it feel a little like it, it was easier to disassociate when it's like at a weird not a time i'm normally up um and so I would sit there on set and it was live TV. So like they bring you out, you know, 45 seconds before you're supposed to go on. But 45 seconds feels like an eternity in live TV. And they get you mic'd up. And then um, I would have a couple moments to kind of think like, what if I can't do this? What if I just lose? My fear was always like, what if I, my, my, my language for it is like floating away from yourself. But like, what if I just can't speak? I forget how to speak and, um, and then I would like close my eyes and I would tell myself, you can do this. You're a professional. That would be like my thing I tell myself. But really what always saved me was, and then I would remind myself like, just 
lock into the host. That was my own words for it. But like, just focus on the host, listen to her, make eye contact. And so it was that thing of like, I'm I'm tethered to this moment because I am talking to another human being. Mm hmm. Yeah. And anything physical, right? Like if you could, if you could touch your, touch your chair, right. you know, if your chair had a particular, like this is, we're sitting on these velvet chairs that feel amazing. Touch, somehow connecting yourself to mm-hmm. the physical world allows you to get outside of your brain a little bit more, Yeah, you know? And so, yeah, that's hugely helpful. I think to people who struggle with that. I do. Rem- this is very tangentially related working on another project and we, we had to memorize some stuff. And this woman told me that if you're trying to memorize something and you're having trouble, run your finger like along the edge of of something that has like a pointy edge, run your finger along it while saying it and that'll help you. And I've done it a thousand times and it does not help at all. (laughs) It does not help at all. I remember who it was actually. Do you know who Carol Shelby is? I don't. Some big, I bet, I bet your boyfriend would know. Some like big Mustang person, maybe a Mustang designer. It was like Carol Shelby's daughter. Oh. And she had this cool belt that was made out of a seat belt and that was her advice for memorizing copy and it does not work she's full of shit so what <laughs> you're saying is carol shelby's daughter is full of shit that's right okay that's right no i'm i'm there for th- I, I get it i get it it sounds like she's a horrible person yeah but um, i but she has such a cool belt i appreciated <laughs> no, the generosity of the tip it's just it was it has proven to not work uh let's do just me or everyone this is a question that I also ask myself. So, oh, good. Yeah, so, okay. yeah, I was like, oh, yeah, I could totally have a show with this. Okay. Sometimes I ponder on something I have thought or done. Is it just me or everyone? Sarah Simmons says, when I go number two, sitting on the toilet, which is where one usually goes number two. When I go number two sitting on the toilet, my feet can't stay flat. I'm always on the balls of my feet. Toilet is average height and I am too. Well, now I'm going to have to do a little I know. pantomime. I know. No, I'm, I'm, I'm plant. Both feet are planted. Yeah. Sometimes if I'm tired, I'm like, I'm like hunched over. Like I'm not practicing good toilet posture. Right. I'm just hunkered down waiting for it all to happen. Yeah. yeah. What about you? No, I'm, I am, uh, I like to expend the least amount of energy possible for any task, any given task that Same. I'm given. Yeah. And therefore I feel like pointing my toes whilst going number two, which I'll admit to doing, mm-hmm. I do it. I yeah. totally do. Um, uh, would, I would have to, <laughs> I would have to ex- expend more energy yeah. and I'm not, I'm Same. not, not going to do that. Also, uh, I would have a question for her. Do you have a squatty potty? Because that would that would actually make what you know pointing your toes while pooping mm. uh, a really good stretch. I think. Yeah. So, do you have you used a squatty potty? I I I don't think I don't think that I ever have. I've used something somewhat similar, but no. But I you know it sounds like a good idea to me. My and- parents have one, although they don't use it, so they just put it in the guest bathroom, which is like the bathroom that my sister and I used growing up. Yeah. And whenever I see it in there, I get angry because <laughs> it's like in the way of my feet. Yeah. I still, I still, even though I haven't lived there now for a while, thankfully, um, I still feel like that's my bathroom. Get that shit out of here. <laughs> even though I know it's supposed to be healthier, I just, I get the squatty potty out. I can't get with it. Here's something that I did notice though. The squatty potty ad and poopery 
they both feature a person with a fake British accent. Why do they? Why do they think it's more civilized? Right. Yeah. If British people are talking about poop, somehow that's better. But I, I found that fascinating. I noticed this some years ago that all of a sudden there were a bunch of shows being hosted by people with British accents. Oh. And I wondered what's up with this trend. And now I can't remember what they are, but I feel like, was it not America's Got Talent, but one of the, so you think you can, maybe so you think you you can dance. I don't know. It just seemed like in general, we think we give more credence to what someone says if they have a British accent. Oh, totally. I think as Americans and that thing where women find it hot and Mm -hmm. it's, it's bizarre, but it's a thing. I don't, I'm not usually someone who is like, I go nuts for a guy with an accent. However, I do have a thing for Hugh Grant. Yeah, I did. He's for, not really I did, my type. I did but, for a while. Yeah, the sort of foppish, um, yeah. stuttering British guy. Not really self-deprecating. No. Yeah, I, I don't know, but I just I have it bad for Hugh Grant, <laughs> and, and I want everyone to know, even my husband. <laughs> Nina Hartley says, "This isn't Nina." Isn't not yes. Oh. <laughs> there, it, this is not that Nina Hartley. Okay. I'm convinced that if I could get the perfect exfoliator, I could scrub my dark spots away. Hashtag gal chat. Hashtag post-pregnancy skin. Well, this is interesting. I don't know because I did receive um, a very highly rated and expensive exfoliator in a FabFitFun box a while ago and I haven't tried it. But now I don't know. Is that true? Would that work? I don't think so, but I'm willing to give it a go. That sounds dangerous to me. It seems like using ex- an exfoliator to the point where it actually takes some of your skin off. A- enough yeah. skin off so that you can see the difference. But I would guess that that she would be able to find an ex- exfoliator product that Designed. claims that this yes. is going to happen. Yes. Like, and they do have, they have, but they have fade creams. Right. Right. So it seems like going for the fade cream first rather than trying to mm-hmm. scrape off right. the color right. feels more kind to yourself. Yes. Is what I would recommend. For anyone who's going to use a skin bleaching cream, because I have done this because I have dark spots, but you can't do it when you're pregnant. Um, it takes a long time to see a difference. It takes like three months. Ugh. But then eventually you'll be like, oh, look, they actually are lighter. But it does take a while. There are laser treatments for that, which I've been think- thinking about for years now. Mm-hmm. Some- someday maybe. I don't know. My fear is like, what if... <laughs> Here's an anxious thought. <laughs> what if they're doing the laser treatment and in the midst of it, they sneeze? <laughs> and they're just like, boink. <laughs> right. You just lost an eye. Yeah, exactly. No. I don't want to do it. Yeah. Okay, Ariel Rollins-Cohen says, just me or everyone, I never know what to say when I'm using a public restroom and someone knocks on the door. Hang on, just a moment, occupado. I say, just a minute. That's just my my go-to if it's a public restroom and I'm in there yeah. and someone knocks. What do you say? I think that I just say, yeah. Or <laughs> in I, here. I, yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, like, I like occupied. Because it sort of distances you a little Mm -hmm. bit so that you don't have to deal with the fact that this is hugely humiliating. Right. That you're actually relieving yourself. But if you say, you know, uh, this stall is occupied. (laughs) Yeah. And you'd have to say it with a British accent because if you're, especially if you're pooping. Right. uh, You have to, it's the rule. Exactly. Mitigate against what's happening. They're more likely to believe you that it's occupied. Yeah. Nick Wester PI says, Anytime I go out of town, my bank puts a hold on my debit card as if to say you're not interesting enough to go someplace fun. Yes, 
Daniel and I have credit cards that are constant. It actually hasn't happened in a while, thankfully. But when we first got them, we were constantly having to call them to say like, yes, this is me putting this charge on. Yes. They were like so psycho with the security, which they say is for your benefit, but it doesn't feel like it is because it's like, well, now I've spent so much time on the phone telling you that you can allow me to please use my card. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is so funny because what I, what's his name? Daniel? Nick. Nick. Um, I don't have no idea where Daniel's I got my husband. Oh, That's right. where he got it. Yeah. <laughs> I think I just said it. Is he an actual, do you think he's a private investigator? Is that what the PI is? Uh, I mean, that's what it stands for. If he is, I would like to know. That's, but I, I know, right? sort of doubt it. Yeah, because he, well, it's, he's like putting meaning onto things, mm-hmm. you know, like trying to find the deeper meaning. Right, but, maybe he is. Yeah, but it absolutely made me think of myself. Um, he, th- I wonder if he either struggles with anxiety or uh, <laughs> is, is a possibly neurotic person because I can manage to turn any sort of information into some, uh, just a fact into proof that I'm like an ineffectual adult or things are shitty. Like I remember one time I was shopping, I was single and I was shopping for um, laundry detergent and I love the Mrs. Myers laundry detergents that have those like honeysuckle, these Mm -hmm. beautiful, you know, they smell amazing. And I was just looking and I was trying to find something, you know, I was trying to find something from, from Mrs. Myers and I, you know, and I got the floral one and I was like, oh, of course I can get a floral, you know, laundry detergent because I don't have a man and I, you know, and, I, and I'm not washing his clothes. So I'm just going to be alone for the rest of my life. This like, and I, so I managed to, I managed to take this experience of like, oh, isn't it amazing that we can now get laundry detergent that smells like honeysuckle. Yeah into something shitty right you know and oh, i think I, I that's that what's hilarious about what nick did there yeah. right that he it's not just that they and, it, and it's absolutely true i feel the same way right. when they call me i'm like yeah my life is not that interesting <laughs> but it's a way of looking at the world yeah. you know that he sees meaning in these experiences that other people would be like oh that's weird the bank's calling me right <laughs> totally jessica williams says the number of people who say frustrating or frustrating is very frustrating to me I have not run into that one. I well, I hear supposedly. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And library. Yeah. Um, you need to start watching more of The Bachelor. Okay. You're going to hear a lot of frustrating <laughs> and frustrating. It's been a little while since I've watched The Bachelor. Yeah, me too, actually. I, I got really, oh, well, I got, frankly, I got frustrated, frustrated. with it. <laughs> um, because it, they just hide any real emotion or actual conversations beyond, oh my God, you like to laugh. I like to also laugh. <laughs> oh my god! You know, or my family is so important to me. Yeah. Oh my god! I'm my family is for my son. <laughs> so excited for my son. Exactly. <laughs> I'm yeah. Oh god. Um. Yeah. No. But that that's uh. That's that's where you need to look to hear it and and, and also people saying he gave it. Wait. So. They gave it to he and I, like where it should be he, him and me. Yes. A yeah. lot of I and a or, lot of yeah. myself where it's unnecessary. Nuclear for me, I'm always amazed at the people that I hear say nuclear. Mm-hmm. Like really some smart people say right. nuclear. I only recently learned that it's Pulitzer, not Pulitzer. Oh, I think I'd always been saying Pulitzer I, as, well, as often as we use that right. word. <laughs> it's one of my go-tos. So <laughs> I only know because I read a book where the character is like, talking about it and he says 
that it should be pronounced this way and a lot of people pronounce it another way. Maybe that character is wrong, though. Could be. Yeah. I don't know. Everything that every thought that we have, this this is a mindfulness thing um, that a friend um, that a friend actually she's going into prisons and teaching mindfulness. It's extraordinary. But um, she she essentially teaches like all we have our thoughts, even these facts mm-hmm. that we you know, that we supposedly supposedly know, <laughs> they're just thoughts that people have had, yeah. right? Like, like, and that's this is actually a huge like a a, a great way uh, when I when I um when I had my book release in Portland, I did it. I crazily sort of put together a live wire show with these other writers and my friend Shelley, who's a therapist, and she gave me um, a pillow with like this beautiful uh, gold and pink fringe with sparkly letters that said feelings are not facts. And, um, <laughs> and it's, you know, and it's, there are some things that, you know, science has proven, mm-hmm. but it is, it's actually very freeing to just recognize these are just thoughts that I have in my head. Right. Like this isn't, <laughs> this isn't necessarily true. And I think all of this stuff that, you know, where it's just even, even something as simple as pronunciation, you know, yeah, maybe it was just this guy and, you know, the, the amount of credence that we give right. to things. Right, and- that I'm like, oh, I've been saying it wrong my whole life. Exactly. Maybe I haven't. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And lastly, Mary says, just me or everyone, questioning how many people still buy actual physical date books and planners versus tech using technology. How are there still so many varieties offered at Target? Oh, Mary. Physical planners are having a resurgence. There's bullet journaling, hashtag Bujo. I don't know. I was going to, I was, you could tell that I was like winding up to, to offer a list, but all there, all I know is bullet journaling. Yeah. But yeah, a lot of people are into the physical planner nowadays. It, I think that it, uh, to me, it's significantly more satisfying Mm. to write something down and cross it off. Mm -hmm. Um, And they say, you know, they say that um, writing something down commits it to memory significantly mm. more strongly than typing it into a computer. So I, I, that's that. But I, I see I see people's bullet journals and I I'm amazed by them. And I wish I, I had the, that kind of time. Not only do I wish I had that kind of time, I also wish I had like a clear desk where I could sit down with my crayons and glitter and stickers and all that stuff. Like I don't I don't have room. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but I'm amazed. I mean, I think that it is. It's a it's an amount of self-discipline. And I think I would guess that there's a psychological thing where if you spend that much time sort of planning something out and, you know, drawing it and making it beautiful, you feel more it's more likely that you're going to do whatever that thing is. That yeah, you, that you wrote about. I know, especially because it seems like bullet journaling. There's a component of. I mean, there's a, it's a whole thing. Yeah. And it of like drawing little pictures of what you want and i don't like this you put so it it puts so much thought into it and the framing of it and all of that um yeah i i keep a physical to-do list on a pad of paper or the back of an envelope (laughs) and but i but my schedule is in my phone and then that seems to work for me yeah i have to have a schedule in my phone so it dings because yeah. yeah, it just doesn't exist if it's not dinging. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and also, it's just always on me. Mm-hmm. So I can... Because that's the other thing is like, well, if I get an actual physical... Because I was tempted 
because I got an email, some spam email about some like new travel planners, and I was like, "Ooh, those do look nice." But I'm like, "I'm not. I know I'm not going to carry it with me." Mm-hmm. Courtney Hommeister, it was so nice meeting you. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Tell everyone, <clears throat> plug all your things, and I'll put a link <laughs> to your book. I'll put everyone go out, get okay, fine, whatever. <laughs> I said it like, okay, fine, whatever. <laughs> Um, I'll put a link to the book in the episode summary. Oh, great. But uh, please plug away. Um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, buying the book would be amazing. You don't even really have to read it. You could just buy the book and give it to mm. a person that you know who has anxiety, who also is fine with swearing and oversharing. Like if you if they're that person, right. just buy it for them and, and give it to them as a gift. Um, but uh, I, yeah, just you can find out more at my website, um, but it's CourtneyHommeister.com and it's impossible to spell both of those <laughs> words correctly. So just imagine what you think that how you think it might be spelled and Google will probably uh, fix it. Um, yeah, I'm going to be actually I'm going to be on Livewire uh, on the 27th of this month, um, which I'm very excited about. I'm going to be on the other side of the microphone. So if you're in Portland, come to that. But also, you know, listen to the show and um that's pretty much it. Oh, well, I mean, I don't know. When is this? When will this air? I'm not 100% sure when this is airing. Oh, yet. okay. Um, why, what, what were you going to say? Oh, just because I'm going to be in San Diego on Thursday. Oh, this will not have aired yeah. by then, I don't think. Okay. Um, but I still think that everyone should uh, go. <laughs> just in, case, in case you are, your appearance is really long. Right. <laughs> um. And I have a book out, Tropical Attire and Courage and Other Phrases That Scare Me. If you go to my website, alisonrosen.com, there's plenty of places to click that'll take you right to Amazon where you can get it available in all formats. Um, and I'm on Twitter, Allison Rosen, Instagram, Allison Rosen, and we have ringtones and t-shirts available. As I was saying on a recent episode, which has not aired yet, uh, I feel like I stumble over this like stuff at the end every time. You'd think I would just record it and then play it with like jaunty music behind it, but I yeah. don't. I like the people need the stumbling. Mm-hmm. That's their favorite part. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they've they've never told me that, but I I'm sure. What did I leave out? Um Oh, I forgot. Oh yeah. Know. If you forgot something, this is the yeah. time. Oh, I'm Weisenheimer on Twitter. Weisenheimer. Mm-hmm. So spell that. It's W I S E N H E I M E R. Okay. There you go. And you guys, uh, if you like what you're hearing, leave a nice review on iTunes. And actually, iTunes now wants to be called Apple Podcasts. So leave a nice review on Apple Podcasts and uh, a nice rating and tell your friends. And thank you for listening. Thanks again for being on the show. Listeners, thank you for listening. I love you. Goodbye. Hey, do you know about the Allison Rosen Show? 